0: Hi, and welcome to half History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And
1: sometimes not so long ago.
0: Yeah. Do we have any updates?
1: I don't have any.
0: Well, I guess we'll just plug the Ko-Fi right at the top, that if you enjoy this show... Please uh, help us keep making it a reality. I mean, we're not going anywhere, <laughs> but it would be nice to get some support. So you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Halfwit History.
1: Yeah, we need to eat, so that'd be great.
0: <laughs> Kylie is about to get at the end of her uh, uh, her don't contract. Talk about it. Yeah, I
1: don't, have a, I don't have a new job yet, and mine ends in a week and a half. So Oh, boy.
0: Well, your job's going to become looking for jobs. Or getting these lovely listeners to support us.
1: If I just like put the saddest plea out on like Twitter and stuff, will that work? Probably not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't hurt to try.
1: <laughs> Please. Okay. I beg you. Anyway. What's your topic? Okay. So my the top The week. The week? Is June 21st through June 27th. Uh huh. And the topic comes from June 21st,
0: 1877.
1: Cool. The Molly Maguire's 10 Irish immigrants are hanged at the Shoe County and Carbon County, Pennsylvania prisons.
0: Not so cool.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about some Irish, not technically gangsters, but like borderline activists. Violent activists. How's that?
0: <laughs> sure.
1: <laughs> anyway, have you ever heard of the Molly Maguires?
0: No, absolutely not.
1: Okay, so neither had I, which is why I was curious. Um, but it does sort of make sense because they were apparently a secret society.
0: Oh.
1: Um, so the group originated in Ireland where secret societies with names like the White Boys and the People Day Boys were common beginning in the 18th century and through most of the 19th century. And can you guess what their dispute was over? No. Agriculture and land.
0: Ah, okay. So that's what we're going with.
1: The other good option would have been religion, but here we are.
0: <laughs> yep. Well, is it, is it potato famine related? No, because it's here in Pennsylvania, right? Is that what you said? P- Philadelphia, Pennsylvania?
1: It's in, it, uh, The event is in Pennsylvania, but the Molly Maguires did start more in the potato famine. Era in Ireland. Okay,
0: so I wasn't wrong assuming that. I second guessed myself right. when I when I said it because you're like agriculture. I'm like, okay, potato famine. But wait, <laughs> it was here.
1: Yeah, so it starts with the potato famine and then it migrates. Okay, <laughs> here we go. So agrarian rebellion in Ireland can be traced to local concerns and grievances related to land usage, particularly as traditional socio socioeconomic practices like small scale potatoes cultivation were supplanted by the fencing and pasturing of land. So like livestock that need like a big grazing area. Yeah. That you really can't do anything else with. Yeah. So kind of a waste. Anyway, (laughs) I love grazing animals, but. So the response from those whose livelihoods were being destroyed was to destroy fences, plow croplands that had been converted into pastures at night, and then killing, mutilating, or driving off livestock. Oh, no. Poor cows and sheep. Probably more sheep. In areas where the land had long been dedicated to small-scale growing season leases of farmland called conacre. opposition was conce- conceived as retributive justice that was intended to correct transgressions against traditional moral and social c- codes. So, like basically we you took our land we're going to mess you up <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. um so if we know anything about the irish it's that they don't take kindly to being defor- to being forced to do well anything mhm they reacted aggressively towards those who benefited directly from the changes as well as people like merchants and millers who were threatened or attacked if their prices were perceived to be too high yep so like they didn't have anything directly to do with it but if they're jacking up their prices because these new landowners have more money, then they were considered targets as well. Right. So additionally, landlords, agents, as well as new tenants on land secured by evictions, were sometimes threatened, beaten and even assassinated. There were even reports of local leaders dressing up as women and then approaching merchants or storekeepers and demanding a donation of flour or groceries. And if the storekeeper failed to provide, the Mollies would then enter the store and take what they wanted, warning the owner of dire consequences if the incident was reported to the authorities. Oh. So, like, weird... Weird
0: espionage. Guerrilla warfare, like, market style. I'm
1: also 100% envisioning the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, where the old hag is like, let me stay in your castle, and the beast is like, No. (laughs)
0: And she's like, cursed like, forever. Ha ha,
1: surprise, I'm a beautiful woman, and I'm going to curse you.
0: As all beautiful <laughs> women do.
1: Welp, <clears throat> I'll take that as a compliment.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, of course, violence by the Irish always seems to make its way into British newspapers. An article in the Times on August 25th of 1845 by Thomas Campbell Foster traced the commencement of Molly Maguireism to Lord Lorton ejecting tenants from Ballinamuck County, Langford. In 1835. An address of Molly Maguire to her children containing 12 rules was published in the Freeman's Journal on July 7th, 1845. The writer claimed to be this so-called Molly Maguire, but it was probably a pseudonym because even in the title of the the address, Molly Maguire is in quotation marks. Oh, okay. Yep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was gonna say because you said Molly Maguire wrote and I'm like wait hold on I thought it was like a, a <laughs> nickname for a group or, or, like yeah. a t- uh, or like a tactic
1: yeah it all stems from this address of Molly McGuire to her children but okay. Molly McGuire is in quotation marks okay um, and supposedly this Molly McGuire was from McGuire's Grove Parish of Clune in County Lake- Leitrim the rules advised Molly's about how they should conduct themselves in land disputes and were an attempt to direct the movement's activities so the first rule Keep strictly to the land question by allowing no landlord more than fair value for his tenure. No rent to be paid until harvest. Not even then without an abatement where the land is too high. No undermining of tenants nor bailiff's fees to be paid. No turning out of tenants unless two years rent due before ejectment is served.
0: Whoa, that's a big eviction period.
1: Yeah. Um, Assist to the utmost of your power the good landlord in getting his rents. So, you know. Help the good landlord.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Cherish and respect the good landlord and good agent. Keep from traveling by night. Take no arms by day or by night from any man. As from such acts, a deal of misfortune springs having, I trust you have, more arms than you ever will have need for. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, righty. Avoid coming in contact with either the military or police. They are only doing what they cannot help. For my sake, then, no distinction to any man on account of his religion. His acts alone you are to look to. And then lastly, let bygones be bygones, unless in a very glaring case, but watch for the time to come. Oh. So a little menacing there at the end. Yeah. (laughs) Basically... Um, It seems like pretty fair rules, right? Essentially, don't let people take advantage of you and judge people based on their
0: deeds. Mm -hmm. And and reward those that are not taking advantage of others. Right, yeah,
1: yeah. And,
0: uh, you know, water under the bridge. Until it's not. Until
1: it's not, right. Um, So in theory, it sounds great. But the Molly Maguires definitely bent these rules a bit. Liverpool, England also had a large group of Molly Maguires, as a lot of Irish settled there or passed through on their way to the U.S. or Canada. These Molly Maguires didn't seem very concerned with the welfare of the Irish and leaned more towards gangsterism. Uh Uh-huh. They frequently started or finished fights with other Irish groups, including the Kellys, the Fitzpatricks, and the Murphys, and sometimes all at the same time.
0: Good. Instigators.
1: Yeah, there was one there was one account that I read that was talking about this fight between like these four Irish troops. And then I realized that it was saying it's the Maguires against all of the rest of them. And I'm like, yeah, that tracks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so let's head on over to the U.S. and meet the real stars of the story. The Molly the Molly Maguires in Pennsylvania were best known for their activism among Irish American and Irish immigrant coal miners until becoming largely inactive following a series of arrests, trials, and executions between 1876 and 1878. Members of the Mollies were accused of murder, arson, kidnapping, and other crimes. And once arrested by the coal and iron police, fellow prisoners testified against them. So there was no love lost for the Molly Maguires. Mm. (laughs) So how did this all come about? Well, here's a little history. During the mid-19th century, hard coal mining came to dominate northeastern Pennsylvania. And by the 1870s, powerful financial syndicates controlled the railroads and the coal fields. Coal companies had begun to recruit immigrants from overseas who were willing to work for less than the prevailing local wage. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Uh, That were paid to American-born employees, luring them with promises of making a fortune and, you know, the whole American dream thing. Yep. Herded into freight trains by the hundreds, these workers often replaced English-speaking miners who were forced to give up their land claims to the wealthy magnates. The immigrants faced constant danger without consistent or even... At remotely enforced safety precautions and injuries or death resulting from mining accidents were very common. And it wasn't just adults who worked these hazardous jobs of approximately 22,000 coal miners who worked in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. 5,500 were children between the ages of 7 and 16 who earned between one and three dollars a week. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be until the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 that age and hazard restrictions would protect children from this kind of situation. And, like, children at this time were, like, the people in the the workers in factories who had to, like, go in between all the machinery to get, like, the scraps and, like, fix things. So, like, a lot of the time children in factories were, like, the highest casualty count. Yeah. Because they were going into these dangerous machines.
0: Makes me think of Snowpiercer.
1: Yeah. Blech. nope, don't like that. Anyway, <laughs> with low wages, horrible working conditions, and serious injuries and deaths numbering in the hundreds every year, it seems pretty fair to say that the life of a coal miner was, you know, less than ideal.
0: I would argue it still is probably less than ideal. Coal uh-huh. mining is a kind of hard job that Hello, they don't black
1: really... lung. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that
0: they don't super care about coal miners.
1: Yeah, yeah, and if, if anyone... <laughs> I'm going to plug into the podcast real fast. Oh, boy. If anyone wants to learn more about um, Black Lung and the even now really, really bad ways that companies get out of paying reparations for it, uh, check out Sawbones.
0: <laughs> what is the episode for it?
1: It's on Black Lung. Like oh, it's just called Black Lung. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know that they do
0: it based on diseases, but I didn't didn't know if it just came up because they're from Appalachia. So that that could just come up at any point. The whole
1: episode is dedicated to Black Lung specifically. And it didn't help that these were some of the only jobs available to Irish immigrants who often encountered help wanted signs with disclaimers that read Irish need not apply. Oh, accepting the most physically demanding and dangerous mining jobs, the men and their families were forced to live in overcrowded company owned housing, buy goods from company owned shops and visit company owned doctors. Mm. Sounds like self-interest, right? Yeah, Yeah. a little
0: bit. Mm -hmm. You're fine. Get back down in the mine. You're not sick. Your lungs aren't completely
1: clogged. It's fine. So in many cases, workers wound up owing their employers at the end of each month instead of getting money because they racked up all these bills from these company-owned places that were super expensive. What a great scheme. Mm, Great. So on September 6th, 1869, disaster struck. A fire at the Avondale mine in Luzerne County took the lives of 110 coal miners, and the families blamed the coal company for failing to finance a secondary exit for the mine. So there was one way in, one way out, and when that one way was blocked by fire,
0: they were trapped. Yep. Yep. And it's just going to eat up all the oxygen down there, even if they're not got by the fire.
1: Yeah, it's not a great situation. So there were also major issues with ventilation, pumping systems, and scaffolding. And in the Shoykill County, over a seven year period, five hundred and sixty-six miners had been killed, and one thousand six hundred and fifty-five had been seriously injured. That's quite a bit.
0: Quite a big number, yeah. yes.
1: So after the Avondale disaster, the miners began to organize, led by John Sinney, head of the Working Men's Benevolent Association, hereafter called the WBA. Thousands joined the union. But that also brought further burdens of prejudice and persecution, especially towards immigrant workers. The years between 1873 and 1879 were marked by one of the worst depressions in the nation's history, caused by economic overexpansion, a stock market crash, and a decrease in the money supply. See the Panic of 1873 if you're interested in that. Not a podcast, just a topic. (laughs) By 1877, an estimated one-fifth of the nation's working men were completely unemployed Two-fifths worked no more than six or seven months a year, and only one-fifth had full-time jobs. Uh Uh-oh. That's a very small number. Yeah, not good. Nah. Meanwhile, rich railroad tycoons rode around in expensive carriages while saying that they couldn't pay their workers a decent wage.
0: Mm, You know, that really hasn't changed too much from now, has it? No,
1: not at all. So one such railroad president was Franklin B. Gowan, the president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railway. Reading. Reading? Reading.
0: (laughs) Monopoly players weigh in.
1: It's the Reading Railroad.
0: Also, (laughs) or the
1: Reading Rainbow.
0: That guy's name, what was it? Franklin?
1: Franklin B. Gowan.
0: Franklin B. Gouging his employees.
1: (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) I'm going to call it the Reading Railroad because I can. (laughs) Just take
0: a look. It's in a book. (laughs) The Reading Railroad.
1: Yeah. So the Philadelphia and Reading Railway. And he was also president of the Philadelphia and Reading Coal and Iron Company. So, again, double interest. Also known, he was also known as, quote, the wealthiest hard coal mine owner in the world. Hmm. So he really be gouging his, his, his workers. Yeah. So Gowan, not wanting to get his hands dirty. Excuse hi- me, gouging. <laughs> gouging, not wanting to get his hands dirty, hired Pinkerton detective James McParland to deal with the Mollies. Using the alias James McKenna, he made Shenandoah his headquarters and claimed to have become a trusted member of the organization. His assignment was to collect evidence of murder plots and intrigue, passing this information along to his Pinkerton manager. He also began working secretly with a Pinkerton agent assigned to the Coal and Iron Police for the purpose of coordinating the eventual arrest and persecution Whoops. (laughs) Prosecution. Persecution would apply, too, though.
0: Probably, yeah.
1: But in this case, it's prosecution Uh uh of members of the Mollies. However, despite the fact that there had been 50, quote, inexplicable murders between 1863 and 1867 in Shorykill County, progress on the investigation was slow. So Gowan decided to force a strike and showdown. Showdown.
0: Interesting emphasis on Showdown right there.
1: Yeah, my brain was not catching up to my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I could tell. (laughs) So one thing McParland learned when starting his investigation is that the Molly Maguires had an alleged cover organization, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, or AOH.
0: What is a Hibernian?
1: I have no idea.
0: What a strange name. (laughs)
1: I know. Um, And this is likely due to pressure from authorities over their, quote, Activities <laughs> um, after beginning his investigation, he estimated that there were four hundred and fifty members of the AOH in Schuylkill County, of which about four hundred belonged to the union, so like the workers union hmm. So in the 1870s, the Pinkerton Agency identified a correlation between the areas of AOH membership in Pennsylvania and the corresponding areas of Ireland from which those particular Irish immigrants emigrated.
0: Well, that seems a little excessive to, uh, little to try and pin down. Mm-hmm. doesn't seem really related.
1: Hmm. The violence-prone areas of Ireland corresponded to areas of violence in the Pennsylvania coal fields. Which honestly could have been attributed to many things, including classism, discrimination, cultural differences, or just the fact that the Irish had essentially been forced out of their lands in Ireland and probably felt like they were being forced into the worst jobs in the mine, (laughs) they were, and then off their land again. So, you know, tempers flared.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I would imagine that that, that's really what happened.
1: I don't blame them. I would be mad too. Anyway, so Molly Maguireism and full-fledged train unionism represented fundamentally different modes of organization and protest. The Working Men's Benevolent Association, the WBA, that union that formed after the Avondale disaster, remember? Yep, yep, yep. Specifically distanced themselves from the violent activities of the Mollies. But unfortunately, they frequently, frequently all got lumped in together because, you know, they were all Irish, so they just assumed they were all the same. Um, As one historian noted, quote, the strategy of the trade union was indirect, gradual, peaceful and systematically organized across the anthracite region. So anthracite is that hard coal. Yep. Um, While that of the Molly Maguires was direct, violent, sporadic and confined to a specific locality. So pretty fundamentally different, right? Yes. Um, And it didn't help that the dichotomy between English and Irish was Still quite prominent, as the English and Welsh held held the majority of skilled positions in the mines while the Irish were just the unskilled grunt laborers. so like theres there was quite a bit of discomfort between that hierarchy as well, yeah. so by eighteen seventy three Gowan Gouen had fully <laughs> impressed with. The, with the necessity of lessening the overgrown power of the labor union and exterminating, if possible, the Molly Maguires, because, again, he had assumed they were one and the same. Mm -hmm. In December of 1874, Gowan led the other coal operators to announce a 20% pay cut. That's a lot, especially when they're getting paid nothing.
0: Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. What is that, like, at that point?
1: I mean, what, 20% of, say, like, $5 would be... Oh my God. Like... The children are getting paid between $1 and $3 a week. So I would assume adults got paid a little bit more. Yeah. But, like, that's ridiculous. The kid's
0: $1 just got brought down to 80%. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 80 cents. Yeah, Yeah. that's um, not a good look, my dude. So the miners decided to strike on January 1st of 1875. And then things got really bad. Edward Coyle, a leader of the Union and the Ancient Order of Hiberians, was murdered in March... And another AOH member was shot and killed by a rival Welsh gang led by a mine superintendent. So one of those higher ups. hmm A mine boss fired into a group of miners, and according to the later boast by Gowan, as the miners, quote, fled, they left a long trail of blood behind them.
0: Now he's gouging out little literal parts of their body.
1: Oh good. Lakes. I don't
0: I don't like this gouging I man.
1: I don't I don't like him either. Um and at Tuscarora, a meeting of minors was attacked and one minor was killed and several others were wounded. So McParlin's superintendent at the Pinkerton Agency sent orders recommending vigilante actions against the Mollies, which, you know, you could probably say this has all been vigilante attacks up until now, too.
0: Yeah. What are, what are you doing mm-hmm. saying vigilante justice against vigilante justice? Like, What?
1: I don't know. Yep. That's
0: called chaos, sir.
1: Yep. Well, they were referred to as thugs and essentially ordered the um, Pinkertons to go after some of the more impactful members of the group. Mm -hmm. So on December 10th, 1875, three men and two women were attacked in their home by masked men. The victims had been secretly identified by McParland as Molly's. One of the men was killed in the house and the other two supposed Molly's were wounded but were able to escape. A woman, the wife of one of the reputed Mollies, who was not a Molly herself, she was just the wife, was shot and killed. McParland was outraged that the information he had been providing had found its way into the hands of indiscriminate killers, so he says. And when he heard details of the attack on the House, he protested in a letter to his Pinkerton supervisor and attempted to resign. He did not object that the Mollies might be assassinated as a result of his spying on the labor workers. They, quote, got their just deserving. But he did object that the vigilantes were willing to commit the murder of women and children who he, you know, deemed to be innocent victims, which, right. Yeah. Yeah. So McParlan believed that the Pingertons reports on the minors and he definitely wasn't the only agent who was keeping tabs on these disgruntled minors. They were pretty much just like all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was, he was disgruntled that these reports had been made available to the anti-Molly vigilantes, which had resulted in this attack. His supervisor managed to convince him not to resign. And a first lieutenant with the Pennsylvania National Guard was arrested as the leader of the vigilante attackers, but was released on bail.
0: Yeah, that's typical. That's, that figures.
1: Yep. And what's even worse is that Hugh McGeehan, a 21-year-old who had been secretly identified as a killer by McParland, was fired upon and wounded by unknown assa- assailants. And then later, his family's house was attacked by people with guns.
0: Good, good. So, like,
1: supposedly McParland was like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, one of these Molly killer people. Get him. And then, like, he, he was attacked and his family's house was attacked. Yeah. Like, what? Excuse me? Uh, But to get back to the strike real quick, (laughs) I bet you forgot about that. No. (laughs) Okay, great. P.S. It ain't going well. Um, The union was nearly broken by the imprisonment of its leadership and by attacks conducted by vigilantes against the strikers. Gowan flooded the newspapers with fabricated stories of arson and murder by the Molly Maguires. The press produced stories of strikes in Illinois, in Jersey City, and in the Ohio minefields that were all inspired by the Mollies, and all of which were widely believed by the public. In reality, in Shariquil County, the striking miners and their families were starving to death. Yeah. Yeah. One of the striking miners wrote to a friend, quote, Since I last saw you, I have buried my youngest child. And on the day before its death, there was not one bit of victuals in the house with six children. So there was no food. Right. They had six kids. Plus, presumably him and his wife. Yeah. (sighs) So things weren't going great. No. No. After six months, the strike was defeated and the miners returned to work, accepting the 20% cut in pay, which is ridiculous. But miners belonging to the ancient order of Hibernians continued the fight. McParland acknowledged increasing support for the Mollies in his report, saying, quote, Men who last winter could not, would not notice a Molly McGuire are now glad to take them by the hand and make much of them. If the bosses exercise tyranny over the men, they appear to look to the association for help. So it wasn't just the workers versus the mine owners either. Judges, lawyers, and policemen, who were all majority English, Welsh, or German, all routinely ignored, avoided, or delayed any kind of legal action on the part of the coal miners. With the justice system so clearly against them, they turned to their other option, which was the Mollies. And violence continued from both sides. By the end of the summer of 1875, six men, who were all Welsh or German, were killed, presumably by the Mollies, and miners who had supported the strike or the, Mo- or the Mollies themselves sometimes disappeared with their bodies sometimes being later found at the bottom of abandoned mine shafts. Huh, I so- wonder
0: why. What a curious spot <laughs> to be found.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one, one would think that you probably didn't just wander over there and tumble in. Uh-huh. So, to the trials, which led to this week's event. When Gowan first hired the Pinkerton Agency, he had claimed that the Molly Maguires were so powerful, they had made powerful financial sources and organized labor unions into their puppets.
0: I'm sorry. How did they get financial institutions when into they were their starving? when they were starving to death?
1: Nobody knows.
0: Yeah. You, you would think, I don't. You would think that they would use their financial <laughs> connections to... Have yeah. bare minimum of a life.
1: You know, feed their people, survive. Yeah. You, know, you would think, yeah. well, I can't pretend to say I know what, Mac- what Gowan here was thinking, because clearly he was crazy.
0: Well, he was just mm. trying to push conspiracy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so he claimed they were making labor unions and stuff into their puppets. And guess what? When the trials began, Gowan managed to get himself appointed as a special prosecutor.
0: Oh, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, it definitely seems kind of like a conflict of interest, don't you think?
0: Sounds like a kangaroo court to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the first trials were for the killing of John P. Jones. The three defendants, Michael J. Doyle, Jimmy Kerrigan, and Edward Kelly, had elected to receive separate trials. Doyle and Kelly were both convicted of first-degree murder, while Kerrigan flipped and became a state's witness, providing details about the murder murders of both Jones and Benjamin K. Yost, who was a patrolman. Narc. Yup. <laughs> Charges were brought against defendants McGeehan, that dude whose family's home was, you know, attacked. Yep. Um, James Carroll, Thomas Duffy, James Boyle, and James Rarity for the killing of patrolman Yost. Yost had not been able to identify his t- his attackers before his death, but it was apparently well known that Carrigan and Duffy hated the night watchman enough to plot his murder. You know, and since Kerrigan had turned witness, he could get away clean while throwing his other friends under the bus.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: However, Kerrigan's wife testified in the courtroom that her husband had committed the murder.
0: Oh. Yeah. (laughs) That's Uh, what you get. narc. I'm going to narc on you. (laughs)
1: Um, Fellows,
0: make sure your wives are happy and going to bury the body with you. Yeah. Not not, uh, turn you in.
1: Because, like... Even at this time, wives were, like, immune from testifying against their husbands. hmm So, like, the fact that she purposely was like, nope, it was him. He did it. I, f- I feel like there were other things going on at home that probably made her be like, I want him gone. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway. So, she testified that she refused to provide her husband with clothing while he was in prison because he had, quote, picked innocent men to suffer for his crime. So, she didn't like that he had blamed the rest of the group <laughs> on this.
0: I like this woman. (laughs) I
1: know, me too. She stated that she was speaking out voluntarily and was only interested in telling the truth about the murder. Gowan cross-examined her, but couldn't shake her testimony. Others supported her testimony amid speculation that Kerrigan was receiving special treatment due to the fact that McParland was engaged to his sister-in-law.
0: Mmm. Mmm. Man, the plot just thickens Mm. over and over again. Mm
1: -hmm. So a mistrial was then declared due to the death of one of the jurors. Uh what? Yep. Huh. A new trial, that was granted two months later, but Fanny Kerrigan did not testify against her husband this time, and the five defendants were sentenced to death, while Kerrigan was allowed to go free. What? Yeah. What? Yep. Another trial, that of Tom Munley, for the murders of Thomas Sanger of Mine Foreman, and William Urin. <clears throat> Sorry? <laughs> I haven't said that out loud yet. <laughs> <laughs> U R E N. How uh, else would you?
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Urine. <laughs> oh, well, no. I'm sorry to anyone named Urine.
1: <laughs> sorry, I laughed. Just. Anyway. <clears throat> so um, these trials relied entirely on the testimony of McParland and an eyewitness account who stated under oath that he had seen the murderer clearly and it wasn't Munley. Uh. Yeah. However, the jury accepted McParlin's testimony that Munley had privately confessed to him uh, uh, that he did the murder and he was sentenced to death. So new question. Did they even ask Munley if he committed the crime? (laughs) Because I don't know, and it seems like they didn't.
0: (laughs) I would say that if it's not written, the answer's probably no.
1: Yeah, um, I'm starting to get the feeling that they may not have asked any of these people if they did it.
0: It's just like, my God, it's been passed back and forth ten times. Let's just kill somebody and get on with it.
1: Yeah, not great. Okay, so another four minors were put on trial and were found guilty on a charge of murder. McParland had no direct evidence, but had recorded that the four had admitted their guilt to him. Huh. I wonder why. And apparently him saying that they had confessed to him was as good as an actual confession. So yep. he, he fully could have just been like, oh, yeah, they confessed.
0: They're just looking for heads to roll at this point. That's, so, yeah, that's basically, it. They just
1: wanted someone to blame for these things. All in all, McParland's testimony in the Molly Maguire trials helped send 10 men to the gallows. McParland had even tried to convince a witness to one of the trials to accuse Bill Hayward, who was leader of the Western Federation of Miners, of conspiracy to commit another murder. Unlike the Mollies, he was acquitted. Ah. (laughs) So that's good. But now this is where it gets somber.
0: Oh man, you only got one page left.
1: I know. On June 21st, 1877, six men were hanged in the prison at Pottsville and four at... Mouch Chunk, Mouch, wow, sorry. Mouch Chunk, Carbon County.
0: What? There's a lot of funny names There's in this episode. There's a lot of
1: real weird names in this episode. Mouch Chunk is wild. They were Alexander Campbell, John Yellowjack Donahue, Michael J. Doyle, Edward J. Kelly, Hugh McGeehan, Thomas Munley, James Carroll, James Rorty, James Boyle, Tom- and Thomas Duffy. So a scaffold had been erected in the Carbon County Jail. State militia with a fixed bayonet surrounded the prisons and the sca- scaffolds. Campbell, just before his execution, allegedly slapped a muddy handprint on his cell wall saying, quote, There is proof of my words. That mark of mine will never be wiped out. It will remain forever to shame the county for hanging an innocent man.
0: So, Powerful statement.
1: Yeah. he. Except, you know, it's just mud. So so
0: it's uh, not really... It's probably
1: not going to stay there forever. Yeah, it's going
0: to fall off yeah. within a few hours when it dries up.
1: But he didn't need to know that. So miners arrived with their wives and children from the surrounding areas, walking through the night to honor the accused. And by 9 o'clock, the crowd in Pottsville stretched as far as the eye could see. Oh. Yeah. The families were silent, which was the people's way of paying tribute to those who were about to die. Especially because public executions at this time were frequently still considered to be a spectacle with people gathering and vendors selling their wares and like food and stuff in the crowds. Um, So there is usually a kind of like festive attitude to these things, which is gruesome and horrible.
0: I feel like that's, like, most of human history, though. Yeah. Like, most of human history they celebrated when yeah. they executed people.
1: And I'm sure a lot of the time that celebration comes from the fact of, oh, gosh, I'm so glad it wasn't me kind of thing. Uh,
0: probably for some yeah. people, yeah.
1: So, still silent stillness was a pretty big change of pace. Thomas Munley's aged father had walked more than 10 miles from Gilberton to assure his son that he believed in his innocence Munley's wife arrived a few minutes after they had closed the gate into town, and they refused to open it even for close relatives to say their final goodbyes.
0: Well, that's not so nice. So she didn't
1: get to say goodbye to her husband, which is awful. Yeah. Um. So she she screamed at the gate with grief, throwing herself against it until she collapsed, but she still wasn't allowed to pass. Over the next two years, 10 more members of the Molly Maguires were condemned and hanged at Mouch Chunk, Pottsville, Bloomsbury, and Sunbury. When organized labor helped elect Terrence V. Powderly as mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania, two years after the Molly Maguire trials, the opposition vilified his team as the, quote, Molly Maguire ticket. Huh. Yeah. In 1979, so we're jumping, Pennsylvania Governor Milton Shap granted a posthumous pardon to John Blackjack Kehoe, who was one of the later 10 who were executed. Okay. Um, After an investigation by the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons, John Kehoe had proclaimed his innocence until his death, and the board recommended the pardon after investigating his trial and the surrounding circumstances, which was basically a witch hunt for Mollies. Schapp praised Kehoe, saying the men called the Molly Maguires were, quote, martyrs to labor and heroes in the struggle to establish a union and fair treatment for workers. He added, quote, It is impossible for us to imagine the plight of the 19th century miners in Pennsylvania's anthracite region, a.k.a. hard coal. And that it was Kehoe's popularity among the miners that led Gowan, quote, to fear, despise and ultimately destroy him. And that's the story of the Molly Maguire's. On a side note, if you want to see Richard Harris as James McParland and Sean Connery as Molly leader Jack Kehoe, go watch the 1970 film The Molly Maguire's.
0: Oh, there you go. Which is
1: now on my list of things to watch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, make sure all of you thank, uh, you know, these, quote unquote, rebellious vigilantes that needed to be put to justice because if it wasn't for their violent outbursts, we wouldn't have unions and a lot of people wouldn't be treated fairly still.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Okay, cool. So... On to our call to action. Yes. Okay, you all can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can go to our website at www.halfwit-history.com or you can send us messages at halfwitpod at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, we really appreciate hearing from you guys. Um, Topic suggestions, ideas, comments, um, we would absolutely love to hear anything you have to say.
0: And if you want to help support the show, you can go to our ko-fi at ko-fi.com forward slash halfwit history. Also, thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Down in Our Snow Notes.
1: I like how you all, you almost said snow notes.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know where that came from.
1: <laughs> all right, so fun fact time?
0: It's fun fact time.
1: It's your turn.
0: It's my turn. All righty. Let's see if I still have that screenshot up. I do. <laughs> okay. Whoop. This isn't the screenshot. This is the Excel sheet. Now I got to (laughs) scroll. There we go. Okay, so on June 22nd of 1977, Walt Disney's The Rescuers is released, and it's the first Disney film that gets a sequel.
1: And the sequel is... Arguably just as good as the original.
0: Right, which is I actually really enjoyed both
1: of them. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Also, fun fact about the rescuers, probably everybody knows this at this point, but an artist put a naked woman in a window as they're diving through the city.
1: Yep. 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 I the like thing that I mostly remember from that 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 movie is the like um the rescue aid society song. (laughs) Yeah. R-E-S-C-U-E Rescue Aid Society. Heads held high, touch the sky, you mean everything to me. (laughs) I'm embarrassed that I remember that so well. (laughs) All right.
0: (laughs) What's your fun fact?
1: (laughs) Okay. Oh, okay. Well, so my fun fact is from June 25th, 1978, since this is still Pride Month, the first use of the rainbow flag, the symbol of gay pride, was made by Gil- and made by Gilbert Baker, um, was flown at a march in San Francisco.
0: Very cool. Yeah.
1: I just got my, my pride flag.
0: Nice. Yes. Now
1: we can show support.
0: That's right. We, get, we got our really, really ratty American oh, flag gosh, that needs so to bad. get a get a proper burial.
1: In our defense, it was like that when we got when it like when we bought the house. So. Yeah. we didn't do it.
0: Yep, but we got a flagpole that needs a flag. So yep.
1: And it was free. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anywho, uh I hope you enjoy the show as always. I've been your halfwit, and
1: I'm your historian. And
0: we hope you listen next
1: week.
0: Bye.